Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Today I want to talk to you about vibrant growth. Vibrant growth. I've got one more message in the series that, we'll, that I'll cover next week, but, but I, on Vision Sunday, I wanted to talk to you about vibrant growth. And it's interesting that we have developed theologies about growth, positive and negative. It's interesting that we immediately convert it into what model or what formula is the right formula to follow or the right ideal setup for a church. Is a church to pursue growth? Is it something we should be looking to? I want to cover some of that today. And on Vision Sunday, I'm going to go to the absolute go-to vision scripture. And I normally don't do this. I normally, if there's a certain scripture that everybody preaches on a certain day, I want to find the opposite of that, not the opposite of that scripture, but, but you know, completely, I'll, I'll dig something out of the Old Testament somewhere. I'm just not going to do what everybody else does. But, you know, I, I wrote this down, and it wasn't even my intention to start my message and preach from this verse. And I just thought, okay, well, that kind of sets it up, and I put it down there, and then like... Five minutes later, I, I literally said to myself out loud, Adrian, where are you going with this? Where are you going with this? And I, I thought I was a bit lost, and I thought I was going to have to start again as I was writing my, you know, this happens sometimes as I was writing my message. Um, and then all of a sudden, God began to speak to me through it, and I started to see some of the context, and I started to realize some of the powerful elements in the Scripture, and I realized it wasn't just my thought to write this verse down and to preach it this morning, but it was actually something that God was saying to me, and, and, um, and, and it's so amazing. So I want to go to Habakkuk 2, 2 to 3. You know this one. You've heard it before, right? God says to Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, you can put it on your iPad. You see, this, it's a future-thinking God. He knew that you would have a tablet in church. I'm preaching from a tablet this morning, and I've made it plain, and I've written it on my tablet. It's awesome. It's prophetic. So he may run who reads it. So that he who reads it, it's plain, it's simple. You pick it up, and the vision, as I said before, inspires some action some energy, some movement. I'm going to run with this. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The vision that God gives us is not a lie. It's not deception. When God says to your heart, I have something for your life, even if you don't see it in the immediate or in the time frame that you expected to see it, it doesn't mean that God lied about that vision. And so it's for an appointed time that we hold fast to the vision that God has given us, and at the right time, it will arrive. What people often don't know about the scripture and the context of the book of Habakkuk is that God is saying this to him as a response to a complaint. Habakkuk's actually complaining to God. In, in fact, he makes two separate, long-winded complaints. How many of you ever complained to God? 
Come on, let's be honest. When the division, the, the, the vision delayed for slightly too long, or it came out a little bit differently than what you expected, or you feel like you've been forgotten, or you've been disappointed by how things have turned out, and you thought, you said, God, I thought you said this to me, and now it looks completely different, and I have a complaint. You know, God is not afraid of our complaints. He welcomes us to come and have an honest conversation with Him. All the great men of the Bible did it at one point or another, where they said, God, what is going on? And many times we come to this place where we ask God, God, what is going on? I'm not happy. I remember my boy Eli being young, and when he was a baby, I used to drive him around so that he could fall asleep. And the one Saturday, I was driving around Lone Hill. I think I'd spent half a tank of fuel, and he hadn't fallen asleep. And eventually he was crying, and I turned around, and I stopped the car, turned around, and I said, what is going on, Eli? And in his tears, he just said, I'm not happy. <laughs> and so many of us, we're just like, that's life, you know, which I'm not happy. I have a complaint, God. Habakkuk's unhappiness was specifically rooted in the injustice of the world. The fact that those that are evil, that are unrighteous, that have got evil intentions, seem to be prospering and progressing and having success after success. And yet those that are righteous, that have committed themselves to God, that, that are following in His ways, are seemingly underprivileged. They're disheartened by the fact that they, 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 they are, they're just going through calamity after calamity and failure after failure, and they're often, often overtaken by the unrighteous. Have you ever thought that? Why does somebody else who doesn't even serve God get to have that kind of success? Why is their career successful? Why did they get the promotion? Why did they find a husband or a wife? Why, why do they get to have a baby and I don't? Why do they seem to be blessed, more blessed by not serving God than I am, even though I serve God? And so we complain. Why, God? Why do we go through this? And this is what Habakkuk is saying. Why do the good guys always seem to finish last? I'm sure many of us have been disillusioned like that. I'm pursuing great things, God. I'm working hard. I'm giving my all. I honor you. I pray. I trust. I give. I do all these things. But the people who do none of that get what they want, and I get nothing. It doesn't make sense, Lord. Maybe you've been there. And if you've been there, and if you've ever struggled with that, you're not the first one. We all have. And Habakkuk was one of those people that struggled with this. He even says in the first chapter, in verse 13, he says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Why do you stand by idly, God? Why don't you do anything? He's keen for an answer from God here. In fact, he says, all right, God, I'm going on my watchtower, and I'm going to stand here until you answer me. Until you answer me, God. I need an answer. I cannot go on until you give me the answer that I need. And then strangely, after that heavy complaint, God's response is, he says in verse 2, chapter 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision 
Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul, the unrighteous, is puffed up and is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Isn't that an interesting thing? That God responds to a complaint and to disillusionment and to, uh, you know, disappointment with what's the vision? What have I spoken to your heart? What is the purpose and the intention and the future that I have given you? What is the passion that I have stirred up within you? What did I create you for? Write that down. That's your focus. That's what keeps you going. Not what's happening in the lives of others. Not how others have succeeded and you have failed. You know, the vision that God has for you doesn't keep tabs on the success of others. We've got to realize that our journey is independent. It's unique from every other journey. It doesn't have to look like hers. It doesn't have to look like his. It doesn't have to follow the same pattern. It doesn't have to follow the same story. It doesn't have to have the same yardsticks that we use to measure success in this life because it is a unique calling from the throne room of God for your life. So walk your walk. Trust in the vision that God has given you don't look at others. Don't look to the left or to the right. It reminds me of when, when Peter uh, was, was hearing about the future of John and what God would do in John's life and, 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 uh, and what his future was. And, you know, Jesus actually said to Peter prophetically that you're going to face some real persecution in the future. And when you're young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you're older, others will dress you and take you to places you do not want to go. And Peter's like, this is so, what about John? John just gets to go live on an island. It wasn't a nice island, but he got to go live on an island, and I get to be dragged and crucified upside down. And so, and so Peter gets this kind of, you know, not good news for his future. And he says, but what about him, Lord? And Jesus' response is, what about him? You follow me. You follow me. It doesn't matter. We should be able to celebrate the wins of others. We should be able to, to uh, understand that every journey is unique and celebrate with those that celebrate, mourn with those who mourn. We're using the wrong measuring stick on God's vision for our lives. So God says to Habakkuk, what's the vision that I gave you? Have you forgotten the power of that picture and the deep connectedness of the, for the, of the purpose for which I shaped you. Sometimes we're disappointed in the dream that God has given us because we're too busy chasing someone else's dream. I have seen pastors derailed by this completely. They say, well, that pastor does that. I also want to do that. And so I'm going to pursue what that pastor does. Whether or not it's God's call for me, I give no thought to that. I just want what he has. It's not an effective way to run a race. How many of you would agree with that? Any of you ever do athletics? I tell you, if you start looking to the left and to the right, you are going to veer off course. You'll be disqualified for stepping out of your lane. 
if you're going to run a race, we fix our eyes on the finish line. We fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, and we run with everything we have. We do not give mind to what pace the, one, the people beside us are running at. We don't measure our pace by their pace. We measure our pace by our pace. It's a powerful thing for your life. It's going to set you free in a lot of ways. It's going to give you the energy to run off the things that matter as opposed to those that don't. But we're so busy running after everyone else's dreams. So Habakkuk, so Anchor Church, write it down. What has God got for you? What have I got for you? Write it down so that everybody can read it and pick it up and run with it. It's for an appointed time. It will not lie. It will arrive at the time I've determined it to arrive at. And the righteous live by faith. So in our journey as a church, I'm so glad that because of some things that happened early on in our journey, we got unplugged from the system. We got unplugged from the rat race. We said, we just want to be a church that fulfills the potential that God has given us. And we genuinely believe that it's no small amount of potential. We don't measure the future by the present. We measure it by the promise, by the promise of God. God tells Habakkuk not to give up for two reasons. Number one, the dream was not a lie. It's from God. It's for an appointed time. But number two, he says something to Habakkuk in that first chapter that's so interesting. He says to him, what I am doing right now, you would not believe if I told you. <laughs> how, how epic is that? Like God's literally like, hey, if I told you what I was actually busy doing in this season while you were waiting for the promise to be fulfilled, you wouldn't believe it. And I think that we miss out on what God is doing in the present circumstance because we've become so dissatisfied. We've made our, our happiness and our faith and everything dependent on the result as opposed to the journey. But God's actually saying, I'm going to get you there. It's going to arrive at the appointed time. But in the meanwhile, I'm doing something great. In fact, many people arrive at whatever that dream was and then they look at the years preceding that dream and they think, those were the golden years. Those were the great days. When we were vibrant and when we built together, when we were full of faith and when we had fun together, we didn't make it all about the result. God is doing something in you in the waiting time. Waiting time is not wasting time. God is doing something, something greater than you even realize in you right now. So hold fast to that vision. Don't give up. We've always been big dreamers here at Anchor. We're too in love with the mission that God has given us and the vision that He has put in our hearts to be slowed down by critics and by complaints. And we've had them. We've had critics, many. And, uh, you know, when you step out to do something for God, there's always going to be differences of opinion. And we've had the complainers. And we've had people that have wanted to pull us into their own personal sense of disillusionment. But the thing is, we just know who we believe in. We just, we're just persuaded. And so regardless of whatever's come our way, we're always pioneering. I want you to know that Anchor Church will always be a pioneering organization. 
And in some seasons, we'll pioneer in greater ways than others. Some seasons are a preparation for pioneering, but we are always going to press on because God has given us the vision. We believe in it, and we're going to pursue it together. So regardless of what the season looks like, this vision is something God put in our hearts to reach as many people as we possibly can, to run this one race that we get to run as one who runs to win, to do it authentically and passionately. And all the years that we felt that we just hadn't cracked it yet were years that God has spent building our foundations, building the foundations upon which He is going to, he is going to build. It's, it's something expensive that God has done. I don't know if you've, if you've ever walked past somebody building a new home I know that when, when Eddie and Cantho were building a new home, I went over to their home and, and we poured some olive oil into the, the foundations and just prayed over their home. But you know, those foundations weren't very deep. They, they're deep, but they're just, it's just a home. But if you're going to build a high-rise building, if you're going to build a, a, a huge building, how many of you know the higher you want to go, the deeper the foundations have to be? And sometimes we actually bemoan the season of foundation. We, we don't want to go deep. We just want to go high. But God says, the higher you want to go, the higher I'm going to take you, sometimes the deeper down I have to establish you. You know what happens when you go high? There's some wind up there. Those sky-rise buildings that they build all over the world, they're flexible. You can go look it up. They're actually designed to be able to wave with the wind because at those heights, the winds can be at gale force and can actually cause a building to collapse if there wasn't some flexibility. I had one friend, pastor as well, who used to say, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. And sometimes we don't realize that if, if we don't have some flexibility and some depth, we might go high and end up being broken, end up facing collapse. And that's not what we, what we want we realize that the bigger the building, the deeper the foundations need to be. There's another factor that determines how deep foundations have to go. And it's the consistency and the stability of the soil in which the foundations are going. If you're going to build on a place or in a place that has got unstable surroundings or environment, you need to go even deeper. And how many of you know that our world is very unstable at the moment. So if we're going to build something great, we're trusting God to build something deep first. If you want to go high, you've got to go deep. We're not building a house just for this generation. We don't want Anchor to be a flash in the pan. Whatever comes from it, it's not about the name, it's not about the brand, it's not about the logo, it's just what we've done to connect people to what our vision is. But but it's, you know, it, it's something so much deeper. We want this to be a house that will, that will be run by our children one day. That will be run by your children one day. That will be run then by their kids one day. That will survive generation after generation so that the impact of a few people in the room right now, people who are willing to give, people who are willing to serve, people that were willing to lean in, people that were willing to dream, have without knowing it, created a legacy that will pass on beyond the generations. That's the kind of house we want to build. So we're not in a rush. We're not in a rush just to 
just to get something that looks like it's something. No, we want to build something that's genuine, that's deep, that's going to last. We have a heart to see wild, unimaginable, uncontainable growth here at Anchor. And I think it's important that we say not just numerical growth, but spiritual growth, personal growth, growth in missions, growth in impact, growth in influence, growth in in what we're able to do as a community in every sphere of influence of society. We simply do not believe that God has called us to play it safe or keep it comfortable. Do you know that I actually met with a pastor the other day and I walked into his church and he told me how they had to push the walls back of the church a little bit because it's kind of overflowing. And the elders of the church have determined that they will not expand the building because they do not want the church to grow. They want it to stay a small church. But God is touching people's lives. No, we're going to stay small. That's idolatry, I reckon. When you begin to worship a model or a philosophy of church size beyond what the Spirit is doing. So we're not going to limit God. We don't want to limit God either way. We want to fulfill the potential that God has for us. We're not going to play it safe. We're not going to keep it comfortable. We're going to live big, self-sacrificial lives. In Genesis 1 verse 28 It says that God blessed humanity, Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, of the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, I want you to be fruitful. I'm blessing you. I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. And so multiplication is a mandate from God. To be able to replicate ourselves, to be able to build communities, to be able to create momentum is a mandate from God. He wants us to have that kind of impact. Replication and multiplication is God's command to us. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to all creation. Baptize those who believe and teach them to to observe everything I've commanded you. It's a command from God. We don't actually really have an option. In Acts, the early church, the church grows in no small way. Peter gets up. He has a good day at the office. He preaches a great message. 3,000 people get saved. It tells us in, in Acts 2 verse 41, it says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and on that day about 3,000 souls were added to the body of believers. And it didn't stop there. A few verses later in verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can you imagine how upset all the small church advocates would have been? Instant megachurch. 3,000 people in one day, and it just keeps growing. Instant megachurch at that time. Later on, the church that Timothy led, 22-year-old Timothy led in Ephesus, most biblical scholars believe, had over 100,000 members. I love to just share this when I encounter people that say, no, you know what, the church should be small. And there's different models, there's different ways, there's different things, and we, you know, those are things we can talk about. But, but I, I say to them often, they say, you know, if a church gets beyond that size, it's an abomination before God. I say, Really? The church in Ephesus was an abomination? 
Paul didn't seem to think so. Timothy didn't seem to think so. I love this. I, man, I, I just got to tell you that, you know, I give pastors a hard time, and it's because I am one, right? They give me a hard time as well, I promise you. So, but have you ever heard this? When churches are small, and they go, we're small because we preach the real gospel. Have you ever heard that? They're big because they just tickle people's ears. They just tell them what they want to hear. That's why they're big. And you know what sometimes happens? Those small churches that preach the real gospel, they get big. They've got thousands of people coming. You know what they then say? We're big because we preach the real gospel. Because God approves. God's not going to bless them. They're preaching the wrong God. God's not going to bless them. They just conveniently switch it up according to what phase they're in to help them feel better. Can I point you back to Habakkuk? Write the vision. What did God tell you about our church? Make it plain. Not all big churches are healthy. We know this. We know that there's a lot that goes on and there's a lot of scandal that has happened in big churches from sex to money to abuse to all kinds of things. It's happened. But can I, can I let you in on a little secret? Not all small churches are healthy either. Those th same things happen in the small churches. It just doesn't have as big a profile, so we don't hear about them. I would say that there are more unhealthy small churches, potentially, than there are unhealthy big churches. So the size is not a determining factor in terms of health. So the question is not what model are we pursuing, but what has God put in our hearts? And we have, ha have a heart to reach as many people as we can while we're on this planet. To do everything so that people can come and arrive and leave and not leave the same way that they arrived in. That the cities that we are stationed in will not be able to be unaffected by our presence. And that you'd never be able to do, undo the influence that we have in the nations in which God takes us to. Simply because there's a group of people who said, here we are, Lord, use us. Now, have you ever heard people say, healthy things grow? Don't focus on growth. Focus on health because healthy things grow. And we all just accept stuff like that. But sometimes I like to just think one layer deeper. Is that always true? How about cancer? Grows at a rapid rate. Is it healthy? Unhealthy things sometimes grow as well. How about uh, Nazi Germany? Expanded incredibly. It grew, wasn't healthy. So what I realized is that we don't just pursue growth or health expecting the growth or growth expecting the health. What I realized is we actually have to pursue both. We've got to make both a part of our vision. And I want to tell you this morning that we desire for Anchor to be a church that's growing and a church that's healthy. We pursue both. Constantly, it requires constant attention to make sure that we don't become unhealthy. And it's not always easy. As an example this morning, I want to show you what happened in the early church with the actual apostles that actually walked with Jesus. 
Because we think they're just the perfect church. They had no complaints. Well, Acts 6 tells us something different. It tells now in those days when the disciples were, what? Increasing in number. There was growth. The early church was growing. A complaint by the Hellenists. The Greek Christians arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. They're literally neglecting widows. And there's a complaint. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Like there's an understanding here of what are the mission critical activities that those that are leading the church have to give attention to and how we need to build this thing together as a community. Can I tell you when a church is going to be unhealthy? When the pastor is the beginning and the end of everything in that church. When it's a one-man led, fed, directed, supported mission. Unhealthy. It's unhealthy for him and his family, and it's unhealthy for the people. Because they're not actually engaged in the call of God. And they're going to expect the pastor will 100% let every single person down at one point or another. And every single person is not actually fulfilling their mandate in God to not be spiritually lazy, but to become a part of the vision. Unhealthy when it is led by one person. When pastors are are unable to focus on what God has called them to do. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. I love how that's the qualification to serve tables. (laughs) Whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So a church can handle growth and stay healthy if every part does its share. Then, the, then the, your, your, the size of the church is as big as your community group. How many of you had a thousand people or more in the school that you attended? Would you say you had no community in that school? I'm willing to bet that some of your best friends, even today, are people that you met during school. You know why? Because even when a church is big or a community is big, you don't need to be friends with everyone. You wouldn't naturally be friends with everyone. But you are able to find community. You are able to find a group where your heart connects. And so we've got to get away from these false ideas. Ephesians 4 verse 16, I love this. It speaks about how when we hold fast to Jesus, God causes a growth to happen. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So that the whole body is, listen to this, healthy and growing. When each part does its share, it's healthy and growing and full of love. Anchor Church, that's the kind of church we want to be, amen? Healthy, growing, full of love. In other words, healthy, growing churches occur where healthy, growing individuals commit themselves to the community and to taking the vision and to running with it. When we all run with it together.